Hi everybody, we have Charlotte Rogers joining us today to talk about the importance of writing life insurance policies into trust. Hi Charlotte, hi Roy. Morning Catherine. Morning. Morning. Charlotte's going to be sharing her own experience with us about the problems that a person can face if a trust is not completed. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Charlotte, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Catherine, and thanks for having me um, on your on your podcast this morning. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful day, so looking oh, forward good. to this one. Oh, good. I, I was going to say, I'm actually, I know we say it's a beautiful day. Um, I'm currently in about four layers, and I've had to put the heating on. <laughs> And um, I may grab fudge. I know. I know. I probably should do, shouldn't I? I was going to say I'm going to um, probably grab fudge soon and have some cuddles with him. And <laughs> and how are you doing, Why? How is the wrist doing? Because you did have a bit of an accident, didn't you? Yeah, the, yeah. I f- I fell over playing football, so broke my wrist. Uh, in case anyone hasn't heard yet, and uh, we are definitely moving in the right direction. But obviously, I'm having to do daily exercises, which involves discipline. And as you might be surprised to hear, I'm not oh, very good. Okay. That's that's bringing back memories of me of just this morning with my eight-year-old because he broke his collarbone four weeks ago doing a handstand and um trying to get him to do the exercises well that's supposed to thing is with him it's not trying to get him to do the exercises it's trying to get him not to exercise because he's not allowed to exercise for six weeks and he came home um to me on last week and he looked at me and he went mom I did PE and I looked at him and I was just like right well what do you mean you did PE? And he just went, it wasn't proper exercise. It was just tennis. And I was like, okay, so just tennis, where we're really going to be using our arms, you know, and definitely our upper body and running around and trying to be coordinated. So I'm just constantly in a, a state of terrified at the moment, to be honest, as to what he's doing. And I'm, I'm sure that he'll come home one day and say to me, I did a handstand again. And I'll be like, no, <laughs> just <laughs> let me wrap him up and keep him away from it all. But let's get straight into things. So Charlotte, it is really lovely to have you with us. And I know you've got such an important personal story to share. But then obviously, I know you've got such a passion for trust and you've got some really, really good practices as a protection insurance advisor. So if you can start us off, please give us a bit of your background, a bit about yourself, who you are and what is it that you do? Lovely. Thanks, Catherine. Well, yeah, so I started in the industry uh, straight out of university, really, just looking for a a job. And I think with a lot of people uh, of my age, we kind of fell into insurance. It wasn't especially something that I thought my career would end up in. Um, So that was about 14, 15 years ago. And I was at LV for a period of time as an account manager, moved to rural London as a business development manager in 2017 and then at the end of uh, 2019 decided to take the plunge and uh, be a a protection specialist myself and yeah to be honest I was just getting frustrated with having the same conversations with the same advisors about actually this topic about the importance of writing policies into trust and not seeing much change and I thought well the only way to kind of drive some more change is is by doing it myself so yeah at the end of 2019 uh, decided to become a, a protection specialist and start practicing what I was preaching to everybody else. That's what the insurance industry calls. I doing know, in the dark I know. Side, uh, you know <laughs> but it's all good fun. 
So what a timing as well, though. So just before the pandemic and everything went completely different as well, insurance-wise, that was really, really right on the cusp there of that change, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Obviously, it wasn't something I was planning and you couldn't foresee it. Um, but I was very fortunate that at the beginning of 2020, I had the opportunity to join Radcliffe's, which is where I am now, Radcliffe & Co., um, as their protection specialist. So they're a firm of IFAs um, and they didn't have an in-house specialist and they identified that as you know, a potential gap in their advice process. So I was very fortunate and joined them in April 2020. Um, did everything online and here I am today still predominantly working online, which is great. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's really, really nice being able to do that. We should also say Radcliffe uh, then joined the PDG, did. didn't they, Charlotte? Yeah, they did last year. We just renewed for a second year. So there's some really exciting uh, stuff that the PDG are working on, obviously with trusts as well, which I'll uh, be involved in moving forwards. And it's really, really exciting. Like Such an honour to have been asked to join the PDG as, as it is, um, but really exciting to get involved and to try and change some of those behaviours, if you like, that we do see. Well, you're very welcome. And also for, for any listeners that are interested in joining the PDG, quick, quick quick plug, if I may, Catherine, we're always looking for new members. So, uh, you know, please do get in touch if that's something that might interest you. Charlotte, you've got such an you know, an obvious passion for, for trust. I do believe there's, uh, as, as always with lots of people, there's a, there's a real life story as to, uh, you know, how you how you personally had, had were able to relate to this. Do you mind sort of uh, sharing your no, experience? No, not at all, not at all. It, it's, it kind of goes way back to when I was at LV as an account manager. And I had my panel of accounts that I was looking after. In fact, I think, Kuro, you were probably one of them at the yeah, time. Yeah, you were. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> so it was, you know, 2015, 2016, um, sorry, 2014, 2015, I was um, buying my first property with my partner, uh, a lovely um, Georgian property, which uh, we, we'd saved up for three years for the deposit. And we're on the cusp of buying in uh, summer of uh, 2015. And there were various delays in um, in the completion of it. It was a complete renovation from the builder's perspective. And it just dragged on and on. And we're itching to get to get going. And I was relocating to Kent, um, which is where the, the property was. My partner was a submariner in the um, submarine service. So not at home that often um, when he was at home. Um, we kind of split our time between our home in Bournemouth and Kent. So a, a move to Kent was on the cards. And it was in uh, December 2015. He put his policy into force. Uh, we knew we were very due to complete very soon on the property. And um, yeah, very exciting. We had a brilliant Christmas and he went back to work in the January um, up to Faz Lane in Scotland. And on the 8th of January 2016, I got a call to say that we'd finally exchanged on the, the mortgage and everything was good to go. It was a Friday afternoon. I was doing my, my planning for the week, uh, for the year ahead at LV. And uh, it was at that point he said, oh, I don't think I ever wrote my policy, my life insurance into trust. And I said to him, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll download the trust forms um, and we'll get those signed. And, you know, next time you're home, sign the trust documents, whiz them up to the post office um that's it really and he said oh can you do it for me I said no sorry it's a legal document you need to just put your signature on there yourself when are you home I asked and he said oh not till next weekend because the flight prices were really high for this weekend so I'll be home next weekend okay then bye-bye speak to you soon etc etc and that was it it was at uh, 20 past three 
Um, the reason I know the time so specifically is because 40 minutes later, my life did change forever. And at 10 past four, little did I know, but Joe had um, just passed away. And he had just entered the first few steps of his training run. He was going on a quick 10K, he told me, around the base. And he'd call me when he got back from that, as I would have finished work. And he used to always call me on my walk back to the car because it was dark and, and everything else. And when that call didn't come, no surprise to me. I just thought he'd gone to the bar. It was Friday afternoon on base, have a few drinks with his mates. And it wasn't until much later in the evening, about half past nine, ten o'clock, I was starting to get a little bit concerned because he'd normally by that point have messaged to say I'm in the bar. Um, and then just gone ten o'clock at night, the buzzer to the flat went and I was told the news that Joe had passed away earlier on that afternoon. And my first thought obviously wasn't financial at all. It was about getting to Kent, getting to his parents and just, just I don't know, navigating the next few few days and weeks, really. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later it occurred to me that I did have the life insurance policy um, because the builder was pushing me to complete on the purchase. And I was like, oh, gosh, yes, I'll get it sorted. I'll um, put a, a call into the, the advice firm that set up the policy for him. And they sent the trust, sorry, they, they sent the claims form and his parents signed the claims form. But it was at that point that I had to disclose to them that the insurance was in place for the mortgage. Um, and they were unaware that this policy existed. Um, and they told me at that point that they were going to be keeping the life insurance proceeds because they wanted to retire. They couldn't face going back to work after losing their son. Mm. Um, and that was it. It, it what followed was a bit of a battle, if you like, between me and them about, well, this is, I need to, this to pay the mortgage um, and them not wanting to return to work. And nine months later, once the claim had all been agreed, gone through probate, et cetera, et cetera, it was very apparent that they, there was no way that I could afford to keep the property. Um, yeah. So I had to walk away from the property entirely and I was just very very grateful and thankful that the person that we were we were, we were um, buying off um, didn't make me pay the forfeit that you would normally have to pay um, after exchanging on a property and before completion so yeah so that kind of when I came back to work at LV as an account manager that's when I really started active conversations with my accounts around trusts and how important the trust process is and then my my experience within the industry is just kind of evolved from there speaking firsthand having not moved into my house not moved to Kent and not fulfilled a dream that I had for many many years with with Joe and unfortunately it did come down to the signature on a piece of paper wow what a what a what a story and I think the first thing we should say is thank you so much for you know, coming on and being prepared to, to 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 tell that and get people to listen to it because that's very very brave and you know obviously those wins are still there and and some of the you know as you're saying that you just it, it, it just reminds us yet again how important the stuff that we do is in the general context of of life. Um, do, do you think that um, I mean, you know, we'd like to think that the, the mortgage and the protection industries you know, work closer together. I, I think we'd be a bit naive if we thought that was 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 perfect. Do you think that was a, another example of where, you know, and I, I'm sure Catherine's got the stats where the mortgage industry probably never quite got the importance of trust in a way that yeah, the protection 100%. industry I mean, does? I speak to the majority of my clients are first-time buyers. 
um, and the majority of them are unmarried first-time buyers. It was a decision we made at that time. Do we get married or do we put that twenty, thirty thousand pounds towards the, the house deposit? And we, we chose the house the deposit, deposit yeah. as, as many, many people do. Um, and I'm very fortunate that the um, the referrals I get uh, from a mortgage advisor especially are very good quality and well-briefed um, referrals about, you know, you're buying this house together, you need the insurance policy. And then I can explain to them why they need the insurance policy and why it should be set up um, with a nomination of beneficiary or it written into trust. Because, you know, I've been in their shoes. I've been that first time buyer. I've put all of my savings into a dream. Um, but I do think there's, it's not just, I wouldn't say it's just mortgage, the mortgage industry. I think it's a, a lot of referral partners, will writers, mortgage advisors, they've got a vague understanding that's what they should do, but they don't really understand why it should be done. Um, and I think that's the message that needs to be stronger. I think a really big thing that sort of stands out for me, like, and as, as I said, you know, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story. Because it's stuff like this that, you know, I think it's with anything with insurance or anything we're doing, it's always t- we need to sort of help people understand what happens if things go wrong, you know, in a sense. And this is one of those situations where something has gone really, really wrong. And what we've been trying to do, especially at Cure it, is really changing the processes, how we approach trusts. And we've been doing this for the last few years. And it is, I think, a big change as well in the advisor's mindset is in the sense of thinking is I try and get my team to think of a trust as more of a the client has to opt out of it rather than the opting in, you know, this is something that's happening. You know, I try and make my team think of themselves along the lines of like an accountant and a, and a lawyer or something. You know, we're here providing a professional service. This is a legal document. And and another thing that I think can really help, and Charlotte, maybe you sort of like have sort of like similar things out in Roy as well, is that, you know, when we talk about trust, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, first thing that usually comes up in the bullet point is, you know, protect, you know, the money from IHT. That's one of the key things that's like said about trust. But I personally, with our clients, you know, a lot of our clients aren't bothered about IHT. They're nowhere near IHT levels or they don't feel that they're anywhere near IHT levels or they don't foresee how much the property value can increase over time and things like that. So we, like from listening to yourself, you know, obviously the financial aspect of that was was huge for yourself, but, you know, you can just sense and you just know the amount of emotion that must have been, you must have been living in this bubble of emotion for, you know, at the very least, like you say, it was over nine months. And if you can take that emotional intensity away for especially that long a period of time. So when we sort of like talk about trust with people, we don't need with the IHT. Obviously, if it is IHT planning, then obviously we will be going into that. But if it's just regular life insurance for mortgage, things like that, we just, you know, we focus on it. It's going to get your loved ones the money quicker. You know, and and that's it. It's bringing it back, bringing that emotional reason back to the person. Because the only reason that people are taking out these insurances for life insurance is because there's somebody there that they don't want to struggle financially. So there's some kind of connection, there's some kind of emotion. And it's trying to make sure that we we put that all together. So I know, Charlotte, you have an incredible incredible turnaround in terms of trust don't you I mean you've got and I think the industry average is around I could be wrong but I think the last time I heard it was around 20 percent or something of policies and trust maybe and Charlotte you're you're leaving everybody in the dust aren't you you are really really up there with it yeah I think it's going back to what you were saying though Catherine it's about why are we setting up these policies in the first place now I'm not putting a mortgage protection policy in place to avoid inheritance tax I'm putting a mortgage protection policy in place so that whoever's left behind doesn't have to 
worry about losing the roof over their head whilst they're going through so much other emotional trauma. That safe space is still theirs. And then when I'm explaining that to the clients, you know, this is why you might want to consider life insurance to protect the mortgage. It's so that the grieving person has that safe space. They don't have to worry. But having lived through how long it can take to grant probate, being nine months, and I've heard it's even longer since the pandemic as well, that's still nine months of mortgage payments that that person's going to have to to, to meet by themselves. Now, that was impossible for me. We, we needed two incomes to purchase the, the property as most people do and we needed two full incomes to afford the mortgage and the bills and the mortgage payment alone was more than I earned so it was without any form of insurance you know if you if you're looking at it from that simplistic perspective with one person or one income gone how is that person going to afford the mortgage for one month let alone nine months if if that's how long probate's going to take. So by having the, the trust for me is about getting the right money to the right person, not necessarily at the right time, because that will come quite quickly and not necessarily um, without inheritance tax, because that's not the driver. That's just an added bonus, if you like, if or unless you've got a higher, higher net worth case. So when I'm talking to my clients, it's the first conversation. It's like, why are we looking at life insurance? What would you like to happen? And yes, some of my questions could be quite leading. Like, would you like the, the survivor, if one of you is to pass away, would you like the survivor to remain in the property? They're not going to say no when they're on a joint call with each other. So it is a leading question. But actually, if you were to drill down, that's a, that they're not going to be self, very few people are selfish enough to say, no, I don't want them to stay in the property if it's a joint purchase. Mm. So therefore, that gives me immediate a green card to talk about setting the policy up and writing it into trust so that in, in, that happens. Um, a lot of mortgage advisors I've spoken to in the past when I was at the providers would say, well, if it's joint life, I don't need to do it. But what happens if it's joint life and we're a joint life policy and they pass away within the 30 days or at the same time? There's still, then it will go into the youngest estate and we're in exactly the same situation. So I still think there's a very clear argument for having a joint life policy into trust. And I don't write very many joint life policies as it is. Um, but those that are joint life first event do go into trust for those same reasons. And all I think it is, is it's about having the conversation at outset. Why are we setting up the policy? What's the main driver of the policy? And then you can introduce the concept of putting the policy into trust or at the very least setting up with a beneficiary nomination for those providers that offer it so that the end game so the the net result is is the uh, the original intention I, I think the most important point of your story as well as the speed is the ambiguity and, and we come across this a lot and I think uh, it always reminds me of death and service so obviously I do quite a lot of group work and uh, one of the big things about death and service is obviously you need a, a death nomination form. And people have to remember that that nomination form is for your employer, not the insurance company. So if you remember what happens with death and services, the money's paid to your employer, they whip out the form and say, right, this person is nominated. But if they are the trustee, which they normally would be, it's at their discretion, of course. So it's an indication. And, and quite a lot of times people might say to me, and it's just interesting to listen to you, um, actually, I, I, there, there are two obvious people here. I might own a property with my partner for which there's life insurance in an English example. Absolutely, I should pay the mortgage off, but I might want to leave some money to my parents as well. Okay, so I often come to conversations with people about, 
Well, maybe your death in service nomination might be slightly different to your life insurance. Sometimes it's the same, but actually, interestingly, sometimes it can be different. And I think there's the, 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 there's an easy win here with, with some of our conversations. They, it's estimated that between a third and half of all companies in the UK now have death in service policies. Okay. And pretty much every HR person I've ever met makes their people write that different nomination form because the alternative is horrendous because you've got to start guessing who that person's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, and wife, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think maybe uh, a little tip here would be to bring the conversation into, you know, you've probably got some insurance for our work. Now I imagine your, your ex-partner did as well. And, and, and that's an easy conversation to have because they've already got it. And then as our obvious point that if you leave that job, that's why the likes of us three still recommend individual life insurance because there's a good chance you might go to a job that doesn't have death and services. It's just conceptually bringing those subjects up and just getting, and I also think lightening the load. And I often talk about the glass of red wine conversation, which is, you know, the couple sitting down and going, do you know what, if something happens to one of us, who does the money go to? Now it might be, and that's in, in a situation someone says, but I want to look after my parents in some sort of way or, or a brother or sister in some sort of way. But we as a profession have got to, to your point, I've got to have people talking about this right at the start of the process, not after the Lord Mayor show, because this is the classic after the Lord Mayor show. Absolutely. And I think you raise a really interesting point. You know, if a, if a death and service policy hasn't been nominated, then technically the, the employer does have carte blanche on who they recognise as the beneficiary. And interestingly, the Navy did recognise me as Joe's beneficiary because he didn't sign a beneficiary nomination form or discretion or whatever. Um, but at that point, when they asked me about the form, I said, no, that I hadn't nominated him on my workplace death in service. I said, no, that's for his parents. I've got a private life insurance policy for the mortgage, which will be enough for me. I obviously couldn't foresee how the events were going to pan out for the private policy um, to have not received the proceeds for that. Because at that time, you know, another argument I get a lot of is, well, we've got a really good relationship. They'll make they'll look after her. My parents will look after her. I thought that would be the case as well. You know, moving to his home county, giving up my life in Bournemouth, et cetera, et cetera. But without it being written down, and this was the, the clincher for me, was it when it when the policy was paying out to his parents, it came back to me, well, it, the document wasn't signed, it wasn't in writing. Um, and that was that that was the clincher, really. It wasn't in writing. Um, recorded calls, anything else weren't sufficient, it wasn't in writing. Um, so yeah, going back, you can have different, we decided, I decided at that point to have different beneficiaries to so that everybody was looked after, but you have to, if without it being written down, you have to rely on the actions of somebody else of which you don't have any control over their actions. Um, and that's why I say. And of course there is a, there's a third instrument that all of us will have as well for employed, which is auto enrollment because you have to nominate who your pension goes to on death as well. And, uh, I think, you know, the, the more times, although this is a morbid subject, the more times you can bring it up, eventually it will resonate, uh, you know, with, with that individual. And, uh, you know, just to, just to re-emphasize to our listeners, you can definitely have different people on your pension, individual life insurance and death and service. It doesn't matter. But your, yours is the crucial point, Charlotte. Yeah. You've got to write yeah, it Absolutely. And that's all I say to my, uh, my, advice, my clients now is that it will only happen if we set this policy up correctly you ha what does your will say what does this say what does it's getting all the ducks to line up um and i'm in a good position i'm very fortunate that i've got great relationships with will writers who we talk to each other so what's what does the will say and is what they're saying to you the same as what they're saying to me 
I think that's a really, really good point. And I think, you know, if we go back um, to sort of the trust as well, because, you know, I think, you know, what you were saying there about like joint life into trust and things like that, obviously, they can be quite tricky to to sort of like set up in terms of the insurer's forms. Um, and, you know, I think especially for people listening advisors, you know, if someone is cohabiting and it is a joint policy, then the trust is really, really essential. Um but I know we were having a little bit of chat beforehand, Charlotte, as well, about the difficulties that you can actually have with trust. And I do think that some insurers could maybe change their processes a little bit to make things a bit easier at times. Because um, so I have a process now within Cura where basically for myself and for my team, if there is an online trust available, if there's a payment, not you know, the payout planner available and it's a life insurance policy and they're not done then without very, very, very specific explanation, that's seen as an advice fail. Because ultimately, if we're doing a life insurance policy, there should be a beneficiary. That's the whole point of life insurance. So like when we said about bringing these conversations at the start, one of the things I say to my advisors is straight away, right, when you're doing all the box standard stuff of, right, just confirm like your date of birth, right, okay, you're a smoker, non-smoker, right, you're addressed, you have a will in place, right, okay, if I'm doing life insurance, who would you want to pay, you know, benefit from this? Can I just have their name and date of birth? And you've already started to get that information to fill in that trust from the start. And I think the other thing as well is that bear in mind at a point of claims, someone's going to need to ring up and get through your data protection process. So if they're person who's going to ring up and go through, they've got you've got to have information on them to be able to speak to them as well. But if you do that, it's not as if it's you can sort of you can do that. You can bring it in and become a natural part of your conversation. But ultimately, you know, we do just need to have. You know, I do really feel that insurers at times need to have a simpler process. I had, and I've said this before on one of these um, podcasts. I think I was doing um, a gift um, plan for somebody, some gift planning, and I was using three insurers. And I had to use three different trust types with each insurer because on one of them, it automatically was that the um, the spouse was the beneficiary, which is what I, I couldn't have because it needed to go to a child. Another one automatically retained the terminal illness benefit, which I couldn't have because it needed to be gifted. <laughs> and then the third one, I can't remember what was that, but there was something and it was just every single one of them. And the, obviously for the client as well, they're really confused. They're like, all of these trusts are completely named completely differently and they've got all these different terms. And I was just like, I know, I said, I'm so sorry. But I, I, and I explained obviously why each one had to be picked. But you sometimes think, as you look at things, you say, if you're going to offer an online version, just there's lots of insurers who do and do it very, very well. And I know you're not, allowed to copy each other in a sense but the systems are clearly there and, and they clearly work and they're fine so why not just integrate it and like the payout planner side of things you know it's so simple just to put a name in I mean what, what are the difficulties that you find Charlotte about actually getting the trust in place? So I think you've, you've raised some really good points there Catherine across the whole process and it can be quite challenging and I think that puts a lot of advisors off from seeing it through they might know that they have to do it but I think a lot of a lot of advisors naturally, we're, they're all busy, we're all busy. Um, and it's, you know, they put the onus back onto the client, complete this form and send it back to me. And that's what kind of where the conversation ends. Um, I think as an industry, there's so much more that can be done. It's interesting, you said that we, you know, we know that the systems are there. Yes, and also I've had pushback from providers in the past to say, well, it's we can't do it that way because it doesn't fit a trust or it's not going to achieve what we want to do from like a legal perspective. Well, it clearly is if there are providers out there who can do it. So there must be something, there must be some a, a, a golden egg for the whole industry. I just don't know what it is yet. Um, 
one trust document which everyone agrees to a bit like underwrite me like the questions that was something that would be lovely <laughs> um but I'm, that might be wishful thinking um but I think there's a lot more I think there's there's two things I think the advice perspective from an advice perspective we can change that slightly by um I think from an advice perspective, we can change the process that we work by. But I also think from a provider perspective, they need to make this easier. Is it being, I'm going to bring it back to consumer duty, but are we being fair to uh, to their consumers, to the end user, by not making the process easy to understand and by having a lot of technical and legal jargon, which can be quite overwhelming? You know, the, the trust document might be a page long or two pages long, but the, the guide that goes with it is 10 pages long it can be quite overwhelming for what actually the the nuts and bolts is quite a simple process and, and simple outcome um so yeah i think there's there's more to be done on both sides for definite but it's only going to change if we have more conversations around trusts it's also sometimes written in oldie weldy language as i call it uh which just puts people off straight away doesn't it and i think one of the problems we have with with trusts is a lot of the trust law that we use yeah. literally goes back centuries, um, you know, and that, that surely can't be fit for purpose. And I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there are some legal arguments, but I, ju- I just think, come on, this must be something that we can resolve far easier um, by, you know, just getting, I guess, the law society in with in with the big actuaries, in with the reinsurers and the insurers and sit around the table and make this easier because it's it mm. just feels so antiquated. Um, and isn't it strange that when Relevant Life came along, and they made it compulsory yeah. to put a trust in place in order to go on risk. Suddenly, that worked really easily. And, and I thought, Eureka, here we go. But nothing's changed. No, since, I think that's an interesting point as well, because, you know, some providers have got leniency there as well, saying you can put a policy on risk, but we'll give you a certain amount of time to get the trust document back because we understand the client needs to cover and it can take time to post the document out get it all signed on witness. But what's really interesting is the disparity between providers and the amount of signatures needed on a trust or wet signatures versus online signatures, DocuSign, et cetera, et cetera. I think the beneficiary nominations that a couple of the providers have implemented are fantastic at just doing that first step. A lot of my policies will then go into a further trust um, because it doesn't, you know, I, I, I use the joint life, um, car crash scenario quite a lot um you know let's just dot all the i's and cross all the t's just in case so yes beneficiary nomination is an amazing first step and it's i'm a massive fan of it but then writing the policy into a subsequent trust as a fallback is is only going to benefit the client but you've got breathing space to be able to do that because you know that the chances of that hap- that scenario actually happening is relatively is much smaller so the beneficiary nomination will at least do the job. And if beneficiary nomination had been around when Joe had taken out his policy, I have absolutely no doubt because the calls were very explicit in who Joe wanted to benefit from the policy, it would have been, it would have just been part of the online, the application process to put my name and date of birth as part of the application. And then that would have solved a lot of the the fallout, the subsequent fallout. Yeah, a really key. Oh, sorry, sorry. So, right. I think um, a really key thing from that as well is when we talk about insurers changing systems is, is you know, we we obviously know that there's a couple of providers who offer the payout planner and the beneficiary nomination. It's it's one page in the application form, and you kind of think it. 
it can't do it can't take that much to change it now I know I'm not an IT person I work very closely with our IT person and I appreciate our systems aren't the same as an insurer's systems but it surely doesn't take that much to add one more page in <laughs> one more thing just to have that in there and and yes I imagine then there's like the knock-on effect in terms of claims and them understanding where it is and having all that kind of background process done but you do sort of think, you know, in terms of like, well, if you've got a couple of insurers there doing it, they should be able to. And I, and I think another thing that we need to really um, probably bring up and highlight in terms of consumer duty as well is um, the fact that the inflexibility to change trust. So in a, if later on in this season, I'm actually going to be speaking with um, C, which is a charity for surviving economic abuse. And it is something that we're hearing a lot more about. I know Johnny Timpson's um, been doing quite a lot of um, discussion and debate at the moment about the need to not write policies into joint life, that they should be individual because of the fact that we are seeing quite a bit in terms of financial abuse. And when insurers aren't making it easy for us to change trusts, you do think that, you know, the consumer duty, I know a lot of consumer duty, we're getting lots of it fed into us as advisors. You know, there's lots and lots of webinars going on about how we need to change our processes and everything. But I do sometimes think, well, what about going upwards in the chain as well? What about the insurers? What are they doing in terms of that consumer duty aspect? What are they doing in terms of the vulnerability, the lead generation, this end thing in terms of the trusts um, and making it better for people? So I, I think there's quite a lot of areas you know, there's there's a lot of implications at the moment of change that I think everybody needs to do. Like you were saying, Charlotte, it's, it's everybody that needs to change and start to develop their processes. It's that whole thing, isn't it? Just because something's been the way that it's been for such a long time yeah. doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it. Exactly. Roy, I think the PDJ have got a big task on their hands coming up. <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly have. We certainly have. <laughs> Um, let's focus on the positive. I mean, listen, the, the, the negative of this whole conversation is that I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's about one in five policies is written under trust. So let, let's assume it's twenty percent, which is rubbish. Okay, it was eleven, by the way. So we're getting slightly better. Okay, what would what would be your tips, uh, Charlotte, to an advisor who might be feeling a bit of you know pushback from from, from customers when they bring the subject out? What what are some of the you know as well as telling your story, which I'm sure I'm sure sure does get told, but um, uh, what what would be your tips to, to to make the whole process easier uh, at that point where the customer? I think from, a, from an advice trust. perspective, I think any advisor should just be confident in the advice they're providing and why they're providing it. And it's just having that confidence to say, well, you told me that you wanted this policy for X Y Z. With all due respect, this isn't guaranteed to happen unless this trust document is completed or unless this process is followed um, because of. X, Y, Z. So obviously each individual is going to be very different. And I'm not saying that you can get 100% of policies into trust. There are going to be some that, you know, my I'm close to 100%, but there are some that do still fall out of the process. And the priority is getting the policy on risk and covered. And hopefully they don't have the family fallouts further down the line. But it's just about from, I believe, having that confidence, using my story. I tell my story, I'm, I'm doing this podcast because I want more people to understand that life isn't all rosy and they might be buying a property together or they might be doing X, Y, Z, but things can change. Um, and then from that, leading on to that, from that, the advisor having the confidence to ask for help as well. You know, if they're, if they're not sure on which trust documents to use, speak to the BDMs of the providers. There's, there's lots of online or the trust decision trees on providers' websites to help you get the right trust, to help you complete the trust. Um, you know, there's technical 
most providers will offer some technical support or the BDM will be able to guide you through that process. That's how I learn. Um, and yeah, it's worth going on the worth going on the Yeah, if they're available for sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm I need to improve my knowledge in reading company accounts. So I'm I'm going on accountancy courses and all things like that. It's just broadening your that that overall, not being siphoned into I'm an insurance advisor, broker, specialist, whatever you call yourself, but actually making sure that the policy is going to do what it's going to do. Because I was very cross with Joe's advisor very cross and I, I don't want anyone to be cross at me for doing for not the policy not doing what that person was expecting it to do at the end of the day they've passed away they can't see they can't speak they have no say in the matter whatsoever um and that's a, that's a really difficult thing to get your head around when you know what the intention was and the intention was so clear but it doesn't mean anything once that person's passed away or lost capacity so that's why I also bring in will writers and um putting in powers of attorney yeah. are just as important as as and making sure that your will and your powers of attorney do what your policy is expecting it to do as well yeah I mean that's a fabulous point and I think um uh the three of us are all signed up to the why the will writing is so important as part of our journey do you presumably I think you alluded to you work uh, closely with uh, some some will writing people, so as as do I, as as, as do Catherine. Some some tips for maybe some of our listeners to to potentially go out and find some oh, will writers to work there. alongside. They'll love it. Um, it's a great introduction to them, but it's a great referral cross referral. I speak to a lot of will writers who are setting up guardian provisions for their children or for the client's children. Well, without that, without a, an insurance policy, can the guardian afford to take on? said children um and so it's a lovely i get lovely referrals back from will writers to say oh clients come to me to write their will we've been talking about xyz um talking about putting in guardianship provisions i'd like them to talk to you about affording those guardianship provisions so there's the will writers there's loads there's loads out there if you're in networking or have got contacts with local solicitor firms or anything like that they would welcome a conversation around life insurance and the wills. Yeah, and that goes for some some business uh, wills as well, Absolutely. as well as individual. Yeah, correct? and there's I think a lot of people, a lot of will writers, don't know where to turn. They do the will, and they don't really know where else to go. But yeah, it they actually, sort of stop. Again, it's they stop, education yeah. piece. Yeah. It's just by saying, "Well, you're doing this. Well, I can do this bit of the process for you." And likewise, I'm doing this bit. I'm setting up the life insurance policy and I'm sorting out the will. But at the moment, that house, I don't know where the house is going because I can't write the house into trust. You need to speak to a will writer to, to get all of that. So it's just about joining up. And a lot of my clients want to get it all done. Done first time, yeah, fine. Then it's it's kind of all the ticks in the boxes and they can move on. They can complete the house and they can move on from there. Well, I don't know about you two and your fact find, but certainly in, in the Cavendish Ware fact find, there's a big, uh, in, in heavy black type, have you made a will? Uh, yes, no. And then we have a follow-up question, which is, would you like us to arrange uh, a will? So, um, again, sometimes that might be some kind of fact find that people have glossed over. But would you say that's something we need to, to really focus yeah, on? Yeah, I'd say it's one of the first questions I ask. Like, Catherine, I think you mentioned name, date of birth, um, address, etc. Have you got a will? No. Have you got powers of attorney? No. Right. Yeah. And then... 
as b- before we finish the first initial fact find call, it's identifying, right, I'm going to be looking at life insurance to protect the mortgage. I'm going to be looking at critical illness, income protection. But I'm also going to be looking at a policy for the provisions for the for your for your children to for them to go to a guardian. And you mentioned that you haven't got a will. So it's just about creating a little checklist and the will being an extension of the your advice that you will refer them to a will writer or you encourage them if you don't have any um, solid relationships with will writers you're documenting it that they should be seeking further advice in that area as well you've already alluded to earlier but can you just without getting into too much too obviously just briefly tell our listeners uh what intestacy means well what doesn't it mean um <laughs> for, well <laughs> law of intestacy is what the government thinks should happen to your money essentially um, and without, you know, if you're unmarried, your assets and your estate passes to not the person you would think it do to your lifelong partner, to the person that you cohabit with, but it will go to parents, siblings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's a very complicated set of rules, as I'm sure you're aware, but it's um, you don't want it, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you take us yeah. through? And eventually what, one of those, I was going to say one of those people on that list which always makes me smile, although he is now the king, was the Duchy of uh, Lancaster, which, of course, was Prince Charles. So ultimately, if you're, in t- if you're intestate, uh, 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 you know, the crown used to get your money um, because there's a, a very predefined list. And, you know, the thought of, uh, of uh, that, you know, some of your well-earned money going off to the crown, I think, would, would, would shock no, a lot absolutely. of people. Well, I was going to say, Royce, I think what would be interesting, because I, I think a lot of people, a lot of advisors, or, and just generally people would think, well, I'm married, so why would I need this? My partner inherits. You know, there's no, there's no IHT between couples. You know, we do hear that you inherit each other's estates. But it'd be really good, I think, if you can just go over, potentially, just very briefly for us, Roy, not too intense or anything like that, but um, what is the law of intestacy when it comes to married couples or people in civil partnerships? Right. So, but, Okay, so basically, firstly, let's start with everyone should have a will, okay? And I think let's break this down very, very simply. A will is very, very simple. We over overcomplicate it. It's a piece of paper which basically has your wishes on, okay? And people spend far too much time telling people who they want their their lovely earrings to go to or their set of Arsenal programs, all of that sort of stuff. Forget about all that. It's just simply a piece of paper that says, in the event of my death, I want these people to have my estate. What comes in the estate comes afterwards with codicils and stuff like that. If you don't have a will, what happens is that you're intestate, and as we just alluded to, the delay, okay, but also the challenge from external sources can be a nightmare. And I've seen this firsthand um, uh, I think our record uh, recently was a 20 month wow. intestacy. Okay. So you've got, you've got to get these things done. Okay. Um, you're absolutely right. There's no inheritance tax between husband and wife, but the other reason for this is of course, if something happens to both partners. Okay. And it's a great way of doing some very, very basic, but very, very simple um, inheritance tax planning. Okay. Um, but I think Charlotte just hit the nail on the head guardians. Okay. When I sit down with people and I talk to them about who's going to look after people's kids, okay, I always ask an interesting question. I say, "Who are your guardians?" And they naturally roll out the name straight away. Yeah. Okay. And then I always, I don't know about you, two, I always go, "What are those people like with money?" Okay. And quite often they look at you and they go, "What do you mean? I say, are they quite good with money?" No. Yeah. No. Not brilliant with money, actually. And I just always talk to people about why don't you have a guardian and a separate trustee? Okay. Right. Because the guardian's the person that's going to do the day to day looking after. 
And often someone, you might want someone external, even if your guardian is good with money, by the way, to come and give some perspective on how to bring that child up. Do they know your views on private education? Do they know your views on do they go on every school school trip they can go on? Do they know your views on do, do they get a car when they're 18? Do, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is why I call it the glass of red wine conversation. And I think sometimes you get all those people round a table with a glass of red wine because you're talking about the dreaded D word. And you almost uh, you almost have a bit of a have, have a bit of a a bit of a laugh about the conversation just to break it down and just talk about those things because I've sat in many a room particularly on things like private education where brothers and sisters have turned around to people and said oh you've changed your views um, now if you don't have those conversations and uh, uh, you, d- you don't have those sits down you're going to have problems but also what it always ends up in is oh my god we better take a will out okay and I also think as Charlotte also mentioned earlier um, you should have LPAs, EPAs, all of those sort of things as well. It's just, it's just a nightmare if you haven't got that stuff in in in, uh, in place. So I think intestacy is delay and ambiguity and just yuck when you don't want it. Um, so I, you know, I think it's uh, let's not overcomplicate a will. It literally I think people are hitting those like the intestacy levels far quicker than people would really realise. And obviously, even property alone can really push you over it. So I know we're we're quite familiar with a case where everything went completely wrong for somebody and they were over the levels and basically what had happened is because if you do have a married couple and there is a civil or there's a civil partner there then in that instance anything up to two hundred and seventy thousand pounds there's no there's no issues but anything over that they can in, without if they're in that situation without a will if it's over two hundred seventy thousand pounds the person will get the 270 and half of anything above that but the other half would go to someone else maybe children and there was a horrible horrible case where there was somebody prince charles <laughs> no it's just not that one i'm thinking that one it's not I'm don't not forget prince charles well you know there was a married couple but there was no will in place and they had a property that was worth quite a significant sum and the courts forced them, the, the surviving partner, to sell the property because then children were able to, the, the children were obviously were able to have half of the value above 270. So, and the, the children were young. They wanted to still be in the home. The parents still wanted them to be in the home. But because of the way that it was all going, it ended up in a really, really nasty situation. So, as you said, you know, Will, it, it doesn't have to cost silly amounts of money. It is just something where it can be nice and simple. Um, so, definitely. And with blended families as well, it's even more important. Yes. Um, and, you know, maintenance Correct. payments to uh, an ex-partner for the maintenance of your children, but you've bought a new property with your new partner, um, but you pass away, but then they can make a claim against your estate for the remaining maintenance payments it can get very messy and very complicated and a will and a life insurance and trust just takes away all of that nastiness further down the line so it's a conversation I'm having more and more with blended families now as well it's a really really good point Charlotte thank you is there anything else that you would like to share with us as insights or any kind of like final call to action to advisors or the insurers or anything at all I know we've drifted a little bit, but I would just like to ask all advisors just to refer back to why your why policy is being set up in the first place and what the end intention is. And if the end, end intention needs a trust, have the confidence to speak about the importance of a trust or beneficiary nomination. And just remember that the outcome doesn't always go your own way. Absolutely brilliant. 
brilliant final thing okay thank you very much everybody for listening and thank you for joining us today charlotte uh, next time i'm going to be back with matt ran and we're going to be talking about protection insurance and ovarian cancer if you'd like a reminder of the next episode please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk and don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work you can claim a cpd certificate on the website too thanks to our sponsors the octa members thank you charlotte thank you roy thanks catherine See you soon. See you soon.